1953, director William Wyler and star Audrey Hepburn gave the world a classic romance caper with gelato, Trevi Fountain, and a good old-fashioned barge brawl. In 2023, we try a fan-favorite bourbon at a bargain price. The film is Roman Holiday. The whiskey is Smooth Ambler Old Scout. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we are finishing out our William Wyler miniseries with his 1953 classic, Roman Holiday. Brad, uh, if there's one theme that I have really discovered from William Wyler, it's that the guy likes Rome. He's a big fan of, of going and shooting on location in Italy. Whether in the time of Christ or the time of the <laughs> 1950s. Big, big fan of Rome. Huge Rome fan. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of happy that we're finishing out with this palette refresher. You know, we had this big bloated epic in Ben-Hur. We had this intimate, super long movie in the best years of our lives. And now it's like, hey, here's your little reward. Here's the chocolate on the pillow for all the work you've done over the last two weeks, Bob and Brad. And it's Audrey Hepburn. And I, I mean, do things get better than that? Audrey Hepburn is the greatest palate cleanser of all time. <laughs> she is just absolutely <laughs> incredible. And like, dare I say, the most charming human being ever to grace the silver screen. I need to investigate my feelings about Audrey Hepburn uh, with you today, Brad. And also with our... That's, a, that's an interesting sentence, Bob. Well, I, you know, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit trail of my love for Audrey Hepburn without bringing in our special guest today. It's our friend Patrick H. Willems. Joining us for, I think, the fourth time. So we've we've somehow managed to ingratiate ourselves with Patrick. But Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing great. The fourth time. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And uh, two things I want to mention here. It occurred to me, I think, midway through watching this movie that this is the second Audrey Hepburn movie that I have done on this show. Which sure is. was not intentional on my part. But that said, I am happy to keep that going. You know, uh, you know, if we want to, I'll come back for Funny Face or Sabrina yeah. or, or, you know, whatever. Um, but also, I think we should acknowledge, since I was last on the show, we did actually meet in person. We sure did. We have not shared this with Film and Whiskey Nation, but uh, Brad and I took a trip to Brooklyn for the New York World Wine and Spirits competition. And while we were in Brooklyn, we rode a whole one subway stop away from our hotel to meet up with Patrick for a cocktail, which turned into multiple cocktails. Yeah. The guy is incredibly generous with his time and also with his stories about attending the world premiere of Mission Impossible 7. Uh, And we were... I was going to say... The most important thing that's happened is not that we've met, Patrick. The The most important thing that's happened is you have shook hands with Tom Cruise. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. that's don't bury the lead here, man. <laughs> that that is true. Well, OK, this this all uh, I should mention, this is the second time in like three months that I've watched Roman Holiday uh, because so 
and I promise I will not tell this the full like hour long story that I told you guys in person. <laughs> but um, earlier this summer, I did uh, attend the world premiere of uh, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One in Rome, and then I, and then the New York premiere, and I did meet Tom Cruise at the New York premiere, uh, which was uh, exciting. Uh, to say, the, I mean, it, it, it's really, it's one of those, you know, I, I, I look at my life, you know, uh, in terms of like two halves. There was the time before July 10th and uh, the time after July 10th and, um, you know, pre and post cruise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was cool. But also just like going, I you know, going to Rome for that premiere was a really wild experience. And just I, I had been to Rome once before in... For like a, a few days in 2005 in the winter, not peak season for Rome, but go hang out in Rome in June when it is the most wonderful place in the world and just wandering around the city. And then I watched the new Mission Impossible movie, which does have a bunch of fun Rome antics uh, that and, and, and then knowing that Roman Holiday was, despite them being very different genres, a bit of an influence on the new Mission Impossible, specifically the Rome stuff. Then I got back home and I was like, I want to watch Roman Holiday. I haven't seen that since I was like 15. So I watched it, had a great time, and then hung out with you guys. And I was like, what episode did I agree to be on again? <laughs> and and you're like, Roman Holiday. I'm like, oh, I just watched it. Okay, I, I guess I'm going to watch it again. And uh and I got to say, just watching this movie now, I'm just like, I, I I miss Rome so much. I had such a nice time there that uh, watching this movie is like a way to like recapture a little bit of the feeling of, you know, wandering around that, that city. And, you know, I, I can see the places that I went to, which basically still look the same as they do in this movie. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I, as I was watching Roman Holiday yesterday... I saw the the place when Gregory Peck like you know fake runs back into Audrey Hepburn. The Spanish Steps. Stopped. Yeah, the Spanish Steps. I'm like sitting there. I'm like, wait a second. I watched a Hummer destroy this place <laughs> just a few months ago. We we really do need to do like the supercut of the two films, right? Just like, <laughs> like Gregory Peck, and then the Hummer just drives right by him and and just annihilates those steps. Oh yeah, yeah. Just uh, just throw some filters onto the dead reckoning footage to like make it look like it's you know in like black and white film. Like like crop the sides of the frame so the aspect ratio matches. Yeah, you know, am I gonna do this once once like dead reckoning hits Blu-ray? You absolutely yes. are one one hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That that's a way that I'll like you know procrastinate from work i should be doing yeah so the the obvious thing then is remake of roman holiday we have tom cruise in the lead role uh who are we choosing to as his as his opposite well maybe this is where i need to start with my love for audrey hepburn because there is no replacement for audrey hepburn brad i've been thinking about audrey hepburn all day because i watched this movie this morning and you know i don't know how to say this brad there are there are not a lot of actresses that I've ever had like a real life crush on. You know, like when you're growing up, everyone has like the one that they're like, oh, that was my crush. I don't really have that with any actresses. And then I watch an Audrey Hepburn movie and I'm like, I might be in love with you by the end of the film. Like there is. Yeah, there is no one who so authentically charms me to the point where I'm like, 
I will follow you anywhere in this movie, Audrey Hepburn. Like, you could turn out to be a serial killer by the end of this film. And I'd be like, you know, understandable. I, I get why guys still want to be with her. It's the Hitchcock film she never got to make. <laughs> that's, that, that's true. Although, I think she was in a Hitchcock film, wasn't she? I don't no, think she ever made I, it in I one. I think Charade is the closest. Wow. Okay. Which, uh, and like, Charade is merely Hitchcockian. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you need to hear more about that, go back to our episode with Patrick a few seasons ago. Uh, what a good episode. Good movie. Um, yeah, no, she's not in a Hitchcock movie. It feels like she should be. Uh, I guess this is just his prejudice against brunettes. Yeah. And uh, but no, she should be. And also. There I feel like there weren't uh, a lot of these movies happening back in like the the 50s, but. It would it's the kind of thing like I wish Audrey Hepburn were alive today so that they could, you know, subvert the image and have her play a serial killer because that would be fun. (laughs) All right, guys, let's stop here before we get off the rails and let's throw over to our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, I am assuming, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this was not your first time with Roman Holiday? Not my first time, although the first time in a long time. You know, Patrick, you said you probably watched as a teenager. I think I saw this as probably like an eight or nine year old with my dad. So it, it has been... A solid 20 plus years since I've seen this. I think that like as I started watching you you guys were on video right now. So I'm just going to show you the the Audrey Hepburn three movie collection that Paramount released back in the day on DVD. This was like essential to my classic film upbringing. And I look at, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Sabrina and Roman Holiday. And I'm like, these these are truly essential texts we're talking about here. And I found that like. Even though there's not a lot of like conversation or discourse around movies like Sabrina or Roman Holiday, everyone seems to have seen them at some point. Like I've never seen Sabrina. Oh no, Patrick! Patrick! Oh my goodness, Bob! We need to do a rewatch. We have. Ah. We just did it. So we just did Sabrina earlier this season. So we're in a weird spot because now I'm going to be comparing and contrasting this movie to Sabrina all day. But I was shocked at watching that film a few months back and realizing this is a perfect movie because in my mind, it had always been like an eight. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, no, this is Billy Wilder at the peak of his writing powers with Humphrey Bogart and Bill Holden and Audrey Hepburn. Like, you can't ask for a better movie than that. Yeah, uh, I look, I've I've got a there's a lot of Billy Wilder movies that I have not seen. Uh I mean, the guy made a, a pretty decent amount of movies. So I like I've, I've seen I've seen some, but uh, but I but there's a bunch that I haven't. And this is one of them. And and I was I was thinking about it a lot while rewatching Roman Holiday. I was like, I got to just get just like watch Sabrina like this week. Just get yeah, I was going to say growing up for me, Bob, for you, it was those three. For me, it was Sabrina Charade and Roman Holiday mm-hmm. that were my like three intro to to Audrey. Well, I'm also a noted lover of the Hollywood musical. And so My Fair Lady is also like right right up there with this. But yeah, 
let's let's go ahead and get into Brad explains because I want to keep talking about Audrey Hepburn all day. But Brad, we have established this is not your first time seeing this movie, so you have sixty seconds on the clock to spoil the whole thing. I would advise Film and Whiskey Nation to pause this episode here if you have not seen Roman Holiday. Come back after you've watched it, because uh, spoiler alert, it's a very charming film. It's just a really good movie. Also, though, I don't think anything I could say would really spoil the movie. Like the the tagline for the movie really says it all. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. So, Brad, you can go ahead. I I will say, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, the one thing that could be spoiled is just like the ending. Sure. Because I feel like the ending could there's like two ways it could go and it mm-hmm. uh, and it goes one of the ways. <laughs> so 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 basically you there it's possible to be spoiled. Like all of life could have gone one of two ways. And it, and went, it went one, one of way. two ways. It sure did. Yeah. What if they drowned after they <laughs> fell in that river? You see it the camera's set on the shore, they're like swimming, and then all of a sudden they just like disappear under the water and then the credits roll. Man. <laughs> It's got dark. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> right, Brad. Uh, right back to Hitchcock. Yeah. Go ahead and spoil this movie. You've got one minute on the clock and go. Roman Holiday is a film about a princess of an unnamed country who is in Italy for the last of her press tour. Uh, They're in Rome for a few days. She decides that she's had enough of being a princess and wants to go experience the world. She escapes at night, finds herself with Gregory Peck. And they spend the day falling in love together. And at the end of the film, she says, heck with you. I got my duty. You know, Brad, I got to say, man, (laughs) there's a there's a subgenre of romance movies that I have found myself really falling in love with these last couple years on film and whiskey. And it's the romance movie where someone's sense of duty wins out at the end of the film and you're left with like the heartbreak of doing the right thing. I mean, Bob, Casablanca has always been one of your favorite Casablanca. Films. So when we when we first watched Brief Encounter and I got to introduce you to that movie. Oh, my I gosh. watched that for the first time this summer. How good oh, is that Patrick. movie, Patrick? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's it's so good. And I, not to get too into spoilers, but Brad, I have also been telling you that the best film I have seen in probably three years is a new film called Past Lives from A24. And I I told you, Brad, Past Lives is the brief encounter for our generation. Like, I am in love with films that end like this. And I don't know what that says about me, but like, it's almost more impactful when you don't get the storybook ending, you know? Bob, are you looking for a chance to leave your wife because of your duty? <laughs> no, it's it's that... no, no. It's like you just have the dalliance for a couple days, and then you say, oh, "No, no, no, gotcha. I gotta go back to my wife." Right? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I, I love this. It's not a tragic ending, Mm-mm. but it's just a melancholy yes. ending. Yes, and I, that's honestly, that might be my favorite kind of ending. Right? Yeah. I, it, it feels I, the most honest. It does. It really, I, I I mean, especially you look at a movie like this and you look at, you know, who, what these people's lives are and who they are. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, there is no way. I, I mean, here's the thing. The, the, there are plenty of 
you know, movies like, I don't know, A Christmas Prince, uh, where there is a Actually, is that like just the same thing because it's about a prince and then a, a woman who's a journalist? Um, yes, there are there are plenty of it's movies. It's just a Roman holiday remake. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? It's just as good. Yeah, uh, I did actually watch that for the first time and the second one uh, this past Christmas. And they are come on, Patrick. They are silly films. They- uh, <laughs> but I uh, but there are plenty of movies where they'll have a scenario like this, but then they will have various like plot mechanics to be like but you know what we're gonna you know we're gonna change the rules and and roll with it because because love is so great and it's it is nice to see a movie like this that is just very honest about the fact that it's like look they're they are from two wildly different worlds that you know she has she has to go be a princess and return to to living life in a palace and having people kiss her hand all day. It's like, he's just a dude like, no. And also they've known each other for, you know, 36 hours. Uh, If, if that, no more, more like, like 24. It's like, yeah, no, this was like a, a a wonderful day that they will think about forever. Right. But Mm -hmm. no one is blowing up their lives and messing with like international relations because of this. I also absolutely love the little piece of the film where he, he has the countess bringing her milk and cookies and like the whole end of the movie, once she returns you see her transform into the woman that they've all been wanting her to transform into, and yet they don't know what to do with it when it happens. Mm. And and that little moment where they bring in the milk and cookies, and she's like, uh, no, you can leave. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, shoot, man. Come on. Let's go, Audrey. Yeah, you, you know, as we all know, the, the true metaphor for having attained womanhood is... I can get my own milk and cookies. Thank you very much. Right? I mean, this is what <laughs> this is what just, Greta Gerwig was missing in Barbie. <laughs> just turning exactly. them all down altogether. Right? Also, <laughs> ju- ju- just to to clarify, I love because I I think we're Americans. We say milk and cookies. The way they say milk and biscuits. Oh, of course, is just uh, you know speaking basically with British accents, despite being from. You know, so I I don't know. They're from uh, was it Genovia? Is the one from the Princess Diaries? Yeah, it's, it's pretty it much is, there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're right. That's that. That's where. Yeah, that's where she's from. Sure. I feel like all movies should just be all like princess generic European country should just always be called Genovia. Like all filmmakers just know we're just going to call it Genovia. Yes, it's like it could be anywhere. It could be Scandinavian. It could be Eastern European. Sure. It, it 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 fits. It works. It's like the you know the Alan Smithy of uh, <laughs> of fake countries. I am calling for the implementation of the GCU at this point. We need to have enough films that we have figured out the political climate of Genovia. You know all of the ruling families and their spats with each other. This is what we need to be drilling down on at this point. Yes, I'm also looking up uh, what is the country from A Christmas Prince. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while you're doing that, Brad, I want to keep talking about Audrey Hepburn. And part of the reason that I want to keep talking about Audrey Hepburn is that this is essentially a cast of three people. I see Patrick cackling in the background, and it's not at what I'm saying. What's what's the country, Patrick? Uh, Aldovia. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) It's not as good. The southern... 
the southern neighbor of Genovia. Yeah, it's not as exactly. good. Exactly. Well, well, you know what? I don't think A Christmas Prince is as good. I also, I, I don't know if I've ever seen all of the Princess Diaries, so I can't really tell you how good that... See, I, I, I should... I, actually, this is relevant. I promise. I'm sorry to cut you off, Bob. Uh, you know, you, you guys were talking about, you know, your relationship with, you know, the work of Audrey Hepburn and stuff mm. like that. Most of mine, honestly, is the fact that in in like a very kind of traditional way, um, my sister was just really into Audrey Hepburn growing up and I think owned like all of her movies, uh, you know, had a Breakfast at Tiffany's poster in her bedroom as as, you know, girls often do. Um, I did my, my sister even even owned a copy of uh, uh, The Nun's Story. So like even like the not not like the the usual ones, but uh, but yeah. And so most mostly Audrey Hepburn movies were movies. Ones that I would see in pieces walking through the living room when my sister was watching them. Hmm. And so they were kind of coded for me as like, oh, right. Those are like her movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it wasn't until like years later where I, I you know, was actually like, oh, I could, oh, right. I guess they're good and mm-hmm. I could watch them on my own. But uh, but yeah, so that that was mostly my exposure to them. And um, and so also, for instance, The Princess Diaries. Also yeah. a movie that just like my sister watched in middle school. Well, and so I want to keep how I, I want to keep annoying Bob by not talking about Roman Holiday. Dude, yeah. I am can like raising my hand like a child over we, here. Trying can we to... just talk about the fact that <laughs> Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews were in a movie together? Like, what a film. Yeah, that's what Les Miserables was missing was Julie Andrews in there somewhere. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah, back in the day when uh and that movie was an enormous hit. And mm-hmm. back in the day when like Disney would make a movie that wasn't based on a thing. Yep. Uh yeah. That uh, also I will say I've never met Julie Andrews. Um but uh, a friend of mine uh directs um those videos for for like Vanity Fair where like celebrities answer questions and stuff like that and he did one with Julie Andrews and apparently she complete she exceeded the hype. She was as wonderful as you would want her to be. I think he said like the nicest person he has ever worked with on one of those. So <laughs> that's incredible. I was man. just I was because it, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, look, if, if she's mean, she can get away with it. Like yeah. uh, th- th- that's yeah. fine. But no, uh, apparently the best. Well, here's my segue. You ready? From Julie Andrews to the person who stole her part in My Fair Lady. We're going to start talking about Audrey Hepburn some more. And here's my point about Audrey Hepburn, Brad. I've been thinking about this all day. Every truly great movie star has something about them that is, I don't want to say imitatable, but like it's their thing. So when you watch, like I I was watching a really good Instagram reel of a guy impersonating Denzel Washington the other day. And when you see a really good Denzel impersonation, you're like, ah, it's that thing Denzel does, right? Tom Hanks's voice is the same way. And I started thinking about when we did Some Like It Hot recently. We talked about Marilyn Monroe and how she got pigeonholed for doing the Marilyn Monroe thing. And with Audrey Hepburn, it's kind of the same thing, but it's kind of different. (laughs) Like she played essentially the same type of character in every movie she ever did. And, you know, there was some variation to it. She made a really great thriller in the late 60s called Wait Until Dark. And she's not playing like the Audrey Hepburn charming innocent that she usually does. But there's a few like a select few celebrities that. You can't quite imitate Audrey Hepburn. There is something about her that is like ineffable. And you could do an impersonation of her voice. 
You could try to play the same type of character as she does, but you can't divorce the Audrey Hepburn persona from actually seeing her image on the screen. And I think it's like a really small group of movie stars that are in that kind of, you know, rarefied air. Yeah, I mean, she she has just this incredible ability where she might be the most authentic, sincere actress or actor that I've ever seen on screen. Like, everything about her is so genuine and feels just completely real. Mm. And, and like, for you know, for example, in Roman Holiday, a movie that we've barely talked about so far, uh, the moment when she and Gregory Peck are putting their hands in the wall of truth and... You know, he he puts his hand in and freaks out and pulls it out. And she, like, freaks out even more. Like, that moment was so... It it wasn't her pretending to laugh at something. Like, it was her completely losing it at the fact that he, you know, pulled his head or pulled his hand back into his sleeve like it was a Red Skelton skit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, even some of the moments between her and Gregory Peck, I'm thinking of, like, when she's... Man, we we need to describe the plot of this movie in, in better detail because I'm about to lead off a sentence with, you know, that scene where she's drugged, uh, but she's still under the influence of this drug that she was force fed and arguing with Gregory Peck over who wrote her favorite poem, whether, whether it was Keats or Shelley. And she keeps interrupting him in a way that I think it was a little bit improvised, like it doesn't have the rhythm of the rest of the sk- uh, the script. And Gregory Peck plays it off beautifully, but it's those rare little moments where you get a glimpse into kind of her playful side that I think it's just it's so endearing in a way that very, very few movie stars are for me. Yeah, she also I know she's, you know, technically on some kind of, you know, drug, sleeping aid, sedative, whatever, but uh, she's essentially playing drunk in this sequence and she plays drunk extremely well. Uh, also, considering that, that this is a movie from the 50s and this is not like the, you know, a more modern, like naturalistic kind of acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she plays drunk in a, in a way that's both very convincing and extremely charming. And I think the thing that we have to mention is that the opening credits of this movie say introducing yes. Audrey Hepburn. This is her first movie. Yep. Which is crazy because, you know, she's basically the lead. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, she shows up for like about 15 minutes before Gregory Peck does. And uh, and it really it does feel like the idea of being a total unknown and being like, cool, you're going to play like not just the lead in this movie, but you have to convincingly be a princess Mm -hmm. like like that's that's a big task to give someone and it really feels like oh they just went and got so like you know like like i i feel like the platonic ideal of a princess oh yeah and and just like and like found it like like as in like to the point where like i was gonna say like grace kelly becomes a princess in real life yeah grace kelly could not have convincingly played this role as well as audrey hepburn did Right. Exactly. She uh still like one of the most beautiful people that's ever lived, but there's something Audrey Hepburn's a funny thing because she can be like a cool, relatable girl. Uh, but then also like well, okay, 
I'm going to talk about the plot of Roman Holiday and start at the beginning. Oh, all right. Let's do it. So I think the first. Okay, so this movie begins opening title sequence. Then there's like, you know, a classic like, you know, newsreel uh, that, that fills you in on some exposition about like, oh, uh, the the princess is doing a tour of, you know, the capitals of Europe and meeting everyone, and now she's coming to Rome. Great, that's all you need to know. But then the movie actually begins right after that. And in the first five minutes, through her barely saying a word, what they accomplish, what Weiler and Hepburn and Dalton Trumbo uh, who wrote this movie, uh, what they accomplish in terms of like defining her character and making you like her is so elegantly done Well, w- through an elegant performer and character. But the way that's like, OK, we have her at this palace. We have this whole, you know, the whole like to do of her sitting there, you know, on uh, in the fancy chair while while dignitaries come through and meet her and bow and kiss her hand and all this stuff. And so we get like, okay, right. Princess, this is what we think of. Very, the most poised person in the world. And then they just do this little thing where we have a close-up of her feet and she slips one shoe off to scratch her leg. But then the shoe falls over and she can't seem to find the shoe again. But And she has to stay super poised and look, uh, you know, look flawless while she and but the whole time she's she's trying to just like get her shoe back on and has lost her shoe and is like they're on one foot and uh and 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 right away it's just like look perfect princess but then also you know a relatable she, yep charming she's person our girl who just who we care about instantly yeah. it is it is such efficient writing she delivers it so well, you know, and the, the time is when, you know, her eyes will like kind of dart down while she still has her like perfect smile affixed on her face. Mm-hmm. It Like right away, we get the idea. Like, like yep. we, we completely get it. Uh, we're so charmed. We're so on her side. And and I, I mean, and there you go. And like Hepburn is pulling it off basically wordlessly. She is like. She has won us over in the first like minute of her ever being in a movie. It's amazing. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing. Like, if there was ever a time to go back and like watch a movie as it was coming out in real time, can you imagine audiences in 1953? Like, like we watch this knowing the Audrey Hepburn of it all, but like how many better opening scenes does an actor or actress ever have than than what she does in the first 5 minutes of this movie with her presence and her gravitas and her relatability like i it's just incredible what are other instances of a movie introducing a new performer and them just like starting that strong because usually i mean I, I love an introducing credit in like, especially in the opening titles of a movie. It's always fun. But, you know, usually a person kind of works their way up and, you know, they build the career gradually. They're not often just thrust out their center stage uh, like this. And and it, it's everything about it is is very impressive. And 
And yeah, I mean, like this must were people just like screaming in the theaters, like, <laughs> look at what we're seeing. Who is this person? How did you find her? Is she a special effect? Well, and to both of your point, it's not like the first five minutes. It's the first 25 minutes. Like you don't see Gregory Peck until probably around the 20 minute mark. He's playing poker with somebody and yeah. then uh, discovers her on the street. And like, you know, I started thinking about it, Brad, if there's any nitpick I'm going to give this movie. It's that you don't really get into the meat of the plot until around the 40 minute mark. That's where Gregory Peck until makes she his... wakes up the next day. Right, right. Well, and then Gregory Peck goes and makes his little wager with his boss. And it's like, OK, now, like the mechanics of the plot are really in motion here. And yet, even though I would recommend trimming that up if I was editing the movie, you can't argue with it too much because it's like you get to spend 25 minutes gallivanting around Rome with Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, and it's also, it is the funny thing where they don't have, like, a real conversation where, like, she is lucid until, like, maybe the 40-minute mark. Mm -hmm. Because when when he makes the wager with his boss to be like, what if I got an interview with the princess? Would you give me 5,000 big ones? <laughs> uh, and then he goes back to his apartment, and then she wakes up because she has no real memory of the night before. And so she is meeting him for the first time there, essentially. Uh, which is interesting because they have a lot of ground to cover uh, in terms of their relationship. If this is her introduction to him, but everything before, like all the shenanigans with her trying to sleep, you know, just outside in Rome. And, and I think the movie is very careful here about like, and, and it has a lot of fun with it where it's like the optics of Gregory Peck, getting into a taxi with a clearly under the influence woman yep. are are bad and he but he is so aware of it and go and and constantly tries to remove himself from the situation and just have the, the taxi driver send her home or drive her wherever she needs to go and he's like i i do not want this to look like i am just bringing an inebriated woman uh who cannot make decisions for herself back to my place. I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that. And he he just gets forced into it. All of that stuff is so great. She plays inebriated so well. And so, yeah, I... Honestly, I think it's a testament to the movie that they managed to develop their relationship so effectively considering mm -hmm. it doesn't really start until, like, 40 <laughs> minutes in. Well, and it starts in such controversial waters as well, too. And guys, I think that's a good spot for us to segue into talking about Gregory Peck. Now, Brad and I, as we were watching the film, were kind of live, not live tweeting, but live texting at each other about Gregory Peck. And the immediate conclusion that both of us came to was that this is clearly a part for Cary Grant. And we spent minutes and minutes saying, oh, man, this would have been such a good Cary Grant part. I'm not quite sure if Gregory Peck is the right guy for this. Brad then goes into the IMDb trivia page and finds out that this part was, in fact, written for Cary Grant, who turned it down because he thought that he was too old for Audrey Hepburn. Ironic, knowing what we get with Charade 10 years later. But I hate to set the stage for Gregory Peck by saying he's not Cary Grant, but it's kind of like it was the elephant in the room for us, Brad. Yeah, 100%. I spent most of my time watching this movie thinking to myself, man, Cary Grant would have been so good in this. 
Like, like every single joke that he makes, every single time that he has like a repartee with Audrey Hepburn, I'm just like, man, Cary Grant would have been so good at this. And I, I, I tried to separate it and just say, we're going to appreciate it for what it is. But man, oh man, there is a Cary Grant sized hole in this film, Bob. Well, can I just say, uh, I, th- I think everything worked out for the best. I think he, okay. I love Cary Grant. Everyone does. Uh, I am glad we have Gregory Peck here. I mm. think I think I would like the movie less if Cary Grant were playing this part. And I think it's it's kind of the reason that Cary Grant works so well in Charade that I think he is inherently smoother than mm. Gregory Peck. And this is and Gregory Peck's character here is walking such a tightrope of like, look, he is lying to this girl. And he is manipulating her for his own benefit, but then, but but we're won over anyway. And Gregory Peck, and maybe it's just the Atticus Finch of it all, where you know he is. We look at him and we think of maybe the most honorable good man in the history of cinema. Uh, but he feels to me a little bit more like a regular guy who is kind of doing his job. Uh, who who. It's almost harder for me to believe Cary Grant, like, not having the money to, like, pay for drinks. Uh, he's th- There's just something, something a bit smoother about mm-hmm, him, mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a bit more slick, a bit more kind of, like, movie star, like, like supreme, like, coasting on, on this confidence. Uh, and they're, I mean, they're both very smooth movie stars, but Gregory Peck, to me, is a little bit, a, a tiny bit more like Salt of the Earth. Yeah. And, and I think especially when we want the separation of these people are from two different worlds. I think Cary Grant just inherently feels a little bit closer to Audrey Hepburn's world uh, than Peck does. And so, so yeah. Uh, so for me, I'm, I'm like, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, with all that said too, Brad, as I watched the movie and got more used to it being Gregory Peck and not Cary Grant, I actually think this is a really good performance, but, you know, the world remembers Gregory Peck mostly for To Kill a Mockingbird, and I've seen him in tons and tons of movies, but there's not a lot of examples where he is the romantic lead of a movie where the romance is like the point of the movie. You know, he's he's very frequently somebody's husband, right? But he's always playing like the dad in a movie, and I'm just so used to Gregory Peck feeling 62 years old in every movie I see him in that I had to really get out of that like Atticus Finch mindset to even like accept him in this movie. But again, as the movie goes on, I'm like, okay, you you are charming. I can't hold against you that you're not another person because on your own merits, like you do work pretty well for this movie. I'm going to stick to my Cary Grant guns. (laughs) I just I think that everything about this movie works incredibly well. I, I think that, you know, we haven't talked about it. I think that Weiler shoots a really beautiful film here mm-hmm. and it, it helps that Rome is just an incredibly gorgeous city. I mean, honestly, look, but, look don't don't give Weiler that much credit as someone who was just in Rome recently. You point the camera anywhere and it's going to look great. I mean, he didn't really do a lot of work. Yeah, call you Patrick Patrick Weiler. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we get to break, let's round out the three leads of this movie by talking about Eddie Albert, who plays uh, sidekick. I don't even know what his name is in the movie. 
It's uh, it's Irving. It's Irving something or other. And uh, I really like him in this movie. And Brad, he is another example of our longstanding theory that every actor looks cooler with a beard. And this is, this is an era of Hollywood history where no one had beards. Post-war, no beards anywhere. And so, like, the beard is a sign that he is, like, a beatnik, down-on-his-luck artist. And I look at him and I'm like, oh, like, you're, you're the best-looking guy in this movie, man. He yeah, clearly should awesome. have been able to steal Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, this is part of why I'm just like, look, I love Cary Grant, but I don't want to change a thing because the way... The way he and and Peck play the scenes when he keeps talking, but like Peck is trying to get him to like sh- shut his damn mouth because he's going <laughs> to he's going to give away the secret. And he keeps spilling things on him or stomping on his foot or kicking over his chair and all that. And the way it, it then comes back, we have like uh, it like escalates in uh, like. The second to last scene uh, when he's got the photos and and, uh, and his boss is over. They both play that so well. Peck plays the just the the like simmering frustration of it so well. The physical comedy of it. They do so well. Um, I'm like, look, these guys are a really good duo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think he's it, a blast. I mean, the thing where when I. Uh, Peck and Hepburn are, are riding around on the moped, and he's in a car ahead of them, taking his hands off the wheel to try to, like, turn around and, like, you know, take photos of them. It's great. It's oh, great. Yeah. Also, his little car, his little car where, like, the way when the three of them are in this car, uh, and, and again, this is part of why I'm just like, okay, so they really, you know, looked at this movie a lot before making... Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning because it's like, you know, little car in Rome. Yep. Uh, but the way that there's like no roof on it and the way that Gregory Peck sitting in the back will stand up through the roof of the car, reach out, open Audrey Hepburn's door for her. It's it's great. It's so it, it, it's like it's so charming and elegant. Yeah, I uh, I love it. Good Good film. I think that's a good place to hit pause, Brad. We're going to leave the final word for now at I love it. Good film. Let's take a break. Let's drink some whiskey. We'll come back and keep talking about Roman Holiday. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right. So today we are checking out Smooth Ambler Old Scout American Whiskey. This is not Old Scout bourbon, Brad. So Smooth Ambler has an Old Scout label and they produce different kinds of whiskeys under that label. This is the American whiskey and it's called the American whiskey because it contains bourbon as well as Tennessee whiskey. And so it, it cannot be called bourbon, even though, uh, you know, we know that Tennessee whiskey is bourbon. The mm-hmm. tricky thing about it is that we don't know very much about what the whiskey is in here. There's an Indiana whiskey, which we assume is MGP. There's a Tennessee whiskey. Now, I would think that if it was a like a bourbon-esque mash bill, that they could probably get away with calling it bourbon still. I don't know. Like, you know, I know with bourbon, you can't blend different kinds of things and still call it bourbon. But like Mm -hmm. if it qualified as a bourbon, even if they were just calling it Tennessee, could they market this as bourbon? I have no idea. All we know about this product is that it is produced by Smooth Ambler, which is a West Virginia distillery. 
It's not their own distillate. It is a 99 proof American whiskey. I see that it's uh, it looks like it's supposed to be seven years old, but the bottle is non-age stated. And again, folks, like this is just stuff for the nerds among us. Like at the end of the day, if it tastes good, Brad and I are not going to complain about this. But yes, it, sir. it is hard sometimes when you can't find a darn thing about the provenance of the alcohol in the bottle. And we have nothing yeah, it, against Old Scout. Like we picked a barrel of Old Scout for the podcast yes. and it's fantastic. But that was very well received. Yeah, you know, it it really was. We're not drinking that today. We're just drinking the stuff off the shelf. But I cut you off, Brad. Go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say I think it's an interesting quandary for a lot of distilleries just in the idea that the average whiskey consumer is becoming much more discerning mm-hmm. and is curious about those things. But it's not necessarily a breaking point if they don't have it. So I, I, you know, if we were running our own distillery, Bob, I don't don't know what I'd do. What I do know is that Smooth Ambler has made waves over the years with what they find. You know, the the scout in their name is a reference to the fact that they are scouting out whiskey (laughs) from a place with three letters in in their company name. You know? From Indiana. Yeah. All right, Brad, let's scout it out. Let's dive in. Because I'm nosing this over here, and this thing smells fantastic. It's got, like, aspects of all of my favorite different types of bourbons on it. Like, it's got the dustiness that I like in some bourbons. It's got peanut butter on it. It's got, like, really warm cinnamon on it. I think it's got a little bit of uh, maybe even, like, an almond to it this time around. I just – I think this is a phenomenal – classic bourbon nose and no matter what your preferred bourbon wheelhouse is i think there's something in this nose that you will fall in love with yeah for me i i got something of like a a rollo you know i'm mm, talking about yeah. like the chocolate caramel mashup like it, it felt not like i got a chocolate note and a caramel note like they're like combined into this cheap candy and i i really like it there's some orange peel going on, a little bit of a cardamom spice. The cinnamon comes through. It's not blowing me out of the water, but I think it's a really nice nose. I'll, I'll give it a 7 out of 10. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. This is like, I, again, I think when you drink a lot of bourbon like you and I do, sometimes it's it's hard to just step back and acknowledge, like, this is everything you want in a bourbon nose. It Does it, like, is there any aspect of it that absolutely knocks me on my ass? Probably not, but I think it's still commendable. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10, and I'm excited to dive into the taste here, Brad. Yeah, on the palate, you get caramel, there's some leathery notes, there's vanilla. The The cardamom kind of morphs into just g- generic baking spices for me. I like the flavor a lot more than I like the nose here. I'll jump up to an 8 out of 10. I'm in the exact opposite place. I like the nose a lot more than the flavor. And I will say everything on the nose is there on the palate, but there's an introduction of tobacco and leather on the palate that overwhelm everything else. Like the tobacco, especially it gets really bitter towards the back of the palate for me. And it's really tamping down some of those like black cherry dusty notes that I really like that are more delicate. And so, yeah, I I, like it's still good, but I wish that the things that shined on the nose are the things that shown on on the palette, and that's not really happening here. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. 
Yeah, and I think when we get to the finish, it it really fell off for me on the finish, the way it did for you on the on the palate. Uh, it's toasted oak. The leather comes through. For me, the bitterness really waits till the end. And it's almost like it's a high rye bourbon that went wrong on the rye portion. Uh, I'll, I'll drop down to a six and a half out of 10. It's not bad on the finish, just not where it was on the palate. I'm going to stay in the exact same place. I think it's a seven and a half. The same notes that I didn't like on the palate are there on the finish. Toasted oak is a really good one. And Brad, we haven't really gone in on our own personal thoughts on what distinguishes a toasted oak flavor from a charred oak flavor, except to just say, like, you know it when you taste it. We've had enough Mm -hmm. toasted oak finished bourbons now that it's like it's woody, but it's a more bitter wood. And I like it just doesn't have that kind of caramelization that you get on a charred oak. And I think that's here. So it's a seven and a half for me. And on balance, I think I'll give it, I don't know. Do I want to go up or do I want to go down here? What are you thinking on balance? I, I'm sticking at like the perfect average category, like good average, 7 out of 10. I think that's where I'll go as well. And that takes us to value. Now, Brad, in the state of Ohio, what will it set you back for a 750 of Old Scout American Whiskey? Yeah, Bob, in general, this is going to set you back about $35. I don't think that they have it in the state of Ohio, but if you wanted to get the the Smooth Ambler experience, just go get their Smooth Ambler Old Scout bourbon. Yeah. You know, as you said that, I realized I picked this up. I'm going to keep calling them out. OHLQ, you need to just give us some sponsorship dollars at this point. Uh, the Ohio Liquor Bureau does like a last call section where they discount products they're not going to carry anymore. And I just realized I did pick this up there and I thought it was because they redesigned the label. And so they were just getting rid of the old label stuff. But now I'm realizing they were getting rid of all the American whiskey and they're only selling the Old Scout bourbon now. So thirty five dollars sounds good. I actually don't think that's a bad value at all for this, Brad. Like, yes, it's sourced, but it's it's blended quite well. It's from a small distiller or a small producer. Uh, I actually think I'll give this like an 8 out of 10 on value. It's not my favorite whiskey, but I don't think they're overcharging for this by a long shot. No, they're not. I I think that 8 is a little high. I I think that $35 for this is not cheap. I I just was kind of cool on this whiskey. I'll give it a a 6.5 out of 10 on value, which brings my total to a 35 out of 50. Hmm. You know what? Now that you say that, I'm going to drop it one point and I'll give it just a seven out of 10 on value. And that brings me to a 38 out of 50, which takes our overall score to a 73. <laughs> you saw you saw that 39 and you were like, "Nah, this isn't a 39. <laughs> you know me too well, man. <laughs> I, I said it was because your argument was persuasive, but it was just yep, I no. saw the number there. You just you just knew this isn't a 39 it's, whiskey. It's not. And it's really good. <laughs> it's just not a 39. So that takes us to a 73 out of 100 or a 36.5 out of 50. I think that's a good spot for this. That's like right in between a seven and a half and an eight out of 10, if we were going to call it that. It's an above average uh, American whiskey. I think it's blended really well. There's just a few notes in there that don't jibe with my flavor, preferred flavor wheelhouse, you know? Yeah, 100%. This one's fine. 
I, I we've obviously picked a barrel with Smooth Ambler. I think that they have some really great product out there. Their American whiskey just, you know, wasn't quite perfect. I would be curious to try their their actual bourbon to see if there's a, a big difference there, though. Yeah, I would, too. I mean, we've had it with the barrel, but I want to see like their standard product as well. Well, Brad, this ended up being a pretty good experience, and I think that the movie is also a pretty good experience. So what do you say we get back to talking with Patrick H. Willems about Roman Holiday? Let's get to it. All right, everybody, that was Smooth Ambler Old Scout, a whiskey that we drank. <laughs> we, we sure did, Brad. I love it when we make such definitive statements about the whiskey. <laughs> And speaking of definitive statements, I am definitively looking for a victory this week in two facts and a falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you both to our right. And what is wrong? Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents me with three items about the making of this movie, one of which is a complete lie and fabrication, and I have to figure out which one that is. Now, Brad, the reason I want my victory so much this week is that I'm sitting at like, I think 15 and 11 right now on the season. I need one more win to secure a guaranteed 500 record. And I, I got to get it, man. I'm really going to kick your myself. Your desire to guarantee mediocrity is noted. Hey, man, I grew up watching Cleveland sports. That's all I know. <laughs> what, do you, what do you expect, dude? Oh, man. All right. Are you guys ready? Yes. Patrick, you will be my phone a friend. If uh, if Brad tries to stump me too hard, I got but you. also know that uh, if you get this wrong for me, you're French not invited. Yeah, you're French not invited back anymore. That's this is this is it for us. <laughs> yeah. Fourth time is that the streak ends. Fourth time wasn't the charm. Right. Fact number one, Paramount purchased the rights to this screen story from Frank Capra for thirty five thousand dollars. Capra backed out of the film because he felt he could not make it for the one point five million dollar budget their ceiling at the time the lengthy production under weiler then went about seven hundred thousand dollars over budget hmm. okay fact number two the production of roman holiday was especially hectic one for weiler as he brought his entire family to rome with him on vacation including his pregnant wife who gave birth to their fourth child while they're on location fact number three when hepburn recites the poem if I were dead and buried when I heard your voice, beneath the sod, my heart of dust would still rejoice, which prompts the argument about Shelley or Keats, they were actually both wrong. The poem is a original work by the one and only Dalton Trumbo, the blacklisted writer who wrote the film. I hate you so much, Brad. Why, why do you make this so hard on me? I, like, I have no idea. I think I'm going to say that number two is true. And it's my old operative assumption, which is going to come back to get me one of these days that like it's the most innocuous sounding one. Like it's just kind of kind of bland. So I'm like, all right, he took his family. His wife had a baby. Cool. Which leads me to believe one or three is the falsehood. I don't see this as a Frank Capra movie, and I don't really know that I see this as something that Frank Capra would be interested in necessarily either. Like it just doesn't it seems kind of out of his wheelhouse. So what he did also iffy. do Lost Horizon, which really doesn't seem like a Frank Capra movie. That's true. But that was also like 1937. I feel like by this yeah, point, true. he's like, I'm Frank Capra now. Don't don't make me leave America. 
And then, like, hmm, number three, I don't know enough about poetry to know who wrote that. Patrick, what are you thinking, man? Yeah, I'm kind of leaning toward uh, one, the Capra one being uh, false. But um, but also, I accept the fact that there's a very good chance that I am wrong. Hmm. Because this could, also, think- this could be one of those things where it's like, oh, the innocuous one is actually the the wrong one. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, now, Brad- uh, if, if there was a gun to my head, which I hope there never is, uh, <laughs> I would say Capra. That's where I'm leaning as well. Last week, I did put my lot in with our guest, Ethan Warren, and he led me astray rather quickly. I say, but Bob, this is close personal friend who you've had <laughs> drinks with. That's true. Patrick H. Willis. I ate fries out of the same basket as this man. This is <laughs> the pinnacle of close friend intimacy. Uh, I'm going to say one's the falsehood because Patrick has not let me down yet. Don't put it like that. Well, guess what, Bobby? What, Brad? Patrick led you astray. No! <laughs> no! Was it Was it the poetry? No, it was number two. Was it really? Oh, you... It was the innocuous one. Ah. So he, he did take his family with him to Rome on this, but his wife did not give birth to a child while they were there. It sounded so plausible. <laughs> yes. I knew eventually you would get me on one of those, Brad. <laughs> Man! A two-week losing streak. I'm back at it, baby. This is where the like the parasocial relationships come back to bite you. Because <laughs> they've been helping me in the past, and now they're talking me out of common sense. I don't like it, man. I, th- I think what you've <laughs> learned here is uh, do the opposite of what the guest says. <laughs> Disrespect the guest to their face. That's the that's the new assumption. <laughs> Look, if you had if you had I mean, here's the thing. I'm not playing. I, I'm just here to assist. And so if you win, then I basically win, too. Don't distance yourself from this, man. You you are complicit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Brad, let's get back into talking about the movie, which is a, a victory for us all, if I if I will say so myself. Oh, it, it totally is. And I think one of the key reasons it is a victory, uh, we talked about this like right at the start. The ending of this movie is great. Like, am I wrong? No, I mean, it's not just that it's like, the like the melancholy ending too. It's like the filmmaking of the last ten minute scene of this movie is just next level. I okay. I want to go a step further because I just rewatched this movie this morning. I finished <laughs> it half an hour before we got on for this recording. Uh the last like the last scene of this movie, I think, is one of the most riveting things I've ever seen in a film. Simply cutting between. Hepburn and Peck looking at each other, just cutting between two close-ups. The magic of editing. Uh, You you get those eye lines right when you frame those shots. Um, It is like that that stuff where like you can't breathe Mm -hmm. while watching it. You see the like the mental calculus in her head when she sees him and is like, oh, wait, he knows who I really am. And wait, also that th- he wait. So what was what was yesterday? Because he's is he is he a journalist? And oh, there's his friend. Wait, what? Yeah, all of this happening. They say so few words to each other. The thing when she's like, I would like to to meet the members of the press, and just the fact that they 
She's got to go down the whole yep. line of people yep. before she gets to him. The way that uh, the way what's his what's his friend's name again? Uh, Eddie Albert Irving. Or, or, when Irving hands over the envelope of photos mm. and she takes a quick peek, and it, it's it's one of those scenes where you you like you're so you're like afraid to blink when you're watching it because every little. Je- not even gesture every little that like the, the slightest facial movements mm-hmm. on screen are so loaded yeah and they mean so much and and they're communicating so much because they can't have a real conversation because of where they are and what this whole scenario is uh that it is thrilling it, uh and, and I, you know and the I, thing is too like it. it's it's hitchcockian to get back to what we were talking about earlier it's it's cut suspensefully. There is a romantic suspense there where, you know, I, I, we talked about this way back in season one, Brad, with Casablanca and how the famous note that came out of the last scene was like they needed to cut back and forth to Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart looking at each other more times. And that's what drew the suspense out. But there's a really famous Hitchcock story where he's explaining what suspense is. And he talks about, you know, two people are sitting in a cafe and then the whole cafe explodes and it's like, OK, there's a there's a shock value because there was a bomb there. But if you show the bomb being placed there while they sit and have a five minute conversation and you keep going back and showing the bomb, then the audience is like, what are you guys doing? You guys are fools. Get out of there. There's a bomb that's going to go off. And you get the the shot of Gregory Peck kind of coming up to the rope. And just standing there in the front row. And that sets the scene. That's the bomb that's going to go off. And you know that as soon as they lock eyes, something's going to happen. There's going to be this explosion of romance or tension or whatever. And Patrick, you're absolutely right. Every single shot from that point on, the framing of it, the way the camera moves, when she greets the line of press, you don't even see Gregory Peck in frame to start. And then they kind Mm -hmm. of slowly pull back to reveal him. And instead of making it seem more (laughs) interminable and like a long scene, it just drags out the tension of what's going to happen when they finally shake hands. It's masterful filmmaking, Brad. Well, the and the part that stuck out to me with her greeting the press is when she gets to Gregory Peck and goes to shake his hand, he like frames it perfectly and the blocking of all the all the other press kind of like lean forward and look towards them. And it, it it's just this perfect final moment between the two of them that, as we said earlier, both of them will cherish forever. Yeah. And when they have I feel like when she first sees him and you see like her POV shot which is kind of like a wider shot of the press group. And the way it's all of this is like, for okay, the way I think all the rest of them are selected where Gregory Peck is notably taller than everyone else there, but also like even uh, his suit, costume designed by Edith Head, uh, mm-hmm. his suit is like a different texture than everyone else's. So he just pops so much like you can't look at anybody this is a a shot with like 25 people in it and you only look at him as she is there it is all designed so well and i think i think this movie has such an incredible final shot which is really just uh like irving heads out like a minute earlier and it's just this long dolly shot just like a low angle one as you know Peck is surrounded by, and you can see the ceiling above him. It is all just like the most ornate, like, you know, majestic 
kind of palace you uh, you can imagine. And it's just this long shot following him as he walks out. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk to anyone. He's just got his hands in his pockets. He's kind of looking around in this world that he is not a part of. Uh, and he just walks out and it just follows him. The music slowly, quietly comes back in. And then it says the end. Yep. And that's it. That's it. Well, and it's like you think that that shot's going on because something's going to she's going to come running out or something. And no, right. It's just like we're going to play you out all the way to the end with that little glimmer of hope that maybe she's going to forsake everything. Are, are the, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you can imagine and many other movies have done this one of like her aides runs out with like a note right. to give him or something. No, it, it, it leaves you hanging on just 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 like like wondering what's going to happen for like the last 30 seconds mm-hmm. and then and then the end comes on and you let out this this sigh of like you know slight disappointment that they didn't end up together but also you're satisfied because this is this is the right ending it is yep yeah i i, I really think the last as, as much as i love this whole movie i think it's all delightful I think the last scene is what makes it like a masterpiece. Well, okay, we've established this movie is a masterpiece, but it's time for us to pair the movie up with another one with our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggle. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Like I said, Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pick the perfect pairing for this movie to make a great double feature. Brad, I'm going to let you go ahead and go first here. I haven't heard from you in a minute as Patrick and I yammer on about tracking shots and dollies and everything else. What would you pair this movie up with? Man, I I feel like there's only really one movie to pair it up with. And, and I, I, I'm, I've been racking my brain for a little while here trying to think of one. But I, I think Casablanca is the right pick here, Bob. It like just seems thematically and from a similar era... It just feels like it's a great... Can you imagine how much fun it would be to watch those two movies in one evening with a bunch of friends? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just give them the glimmer of hope and then end on a downer both times. Just completely crush it. <laughs> I think I would end with Casablanca just because that final exchange between Bogart and the police chief yeah. is just so good yeah. and so funny. All right, so Brad says Casablanca. I I actually think that's a great pick. I have Casablanca written down as like one of my many options here. Uh, And I'm going to say for my let's make it a double, not to introduce another subgenre, but there's like this, this small collection of movies that Hollywood puts out after World War II that are like travelogue movies. And I think they really were trying to appeal to the fact that so many GIs had come home and they had familiarity with some of these cities. And so they produced these really romantic, touristy kind of films to appeal to the general population. And I couldn't stop thinking about Gene Kelly in An American in Paris in this movie. The shots of Paris at the beginning, the way they set the stage with the most obvious, like the Arctic Triumph and everything else. But also, like, just the contours of the movie itself. You've got an incredibly charming lead in Gene Kelly, the way you do with Audrey Hepburn. I mean, Leslie Caron and Audrey Hepburn's hairstyles are, like, essentially the same throughout the movie. And then you get that melancholy ending where 
Gene Kelly is ready to let Leslie Caron go at the end of the film after that extended ballet sequence. But that movie, crucially, ends with her leaving the dude, running up the stairs, and then they embrace. So you get the happy Hollywood ending there. But honestly, almost everything about these two movies reminds me of each other. So I'm going to go with An American in Paris. That's a good one. Uh, Okay, also, thank you for letting me go last because I forgot about this segment on the show. (laughs) Uh, And so you've given me plenty of time to think about this. But I, I think I've come to a conclusion. I will say. Because I've already mentioned it several times, I I came very close to going with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, just because of the obvious parallels, uh, Rome, Little Car, uh, you know, just the the acknowledged influence. But but I'm, I'm actually, I'm not going to go with that because, uh, especially near the end of this movie, uh, the, the, the movie that I found myself thinking the most about... Uh, you know, and I think for obvious reasons, uh, even though they end differently, uh, is Notting Hill. Oh, interesting. The, the okay. Roger Michel uh, directed romantic comedy with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant, which is in my like top tier of romantic comedies of all time. Um, and that is another one, you know, set in a European city. Not 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 quite as fancy as Rome, but, you know, London. Uh, is it the capital of Genovia? Exactly. Of course. <laughs> a big Genovia movie. Um, but it is it is about it is a romantic comedy with people with, with a regular person and then someone from like a different social strata. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it they, they play out differently. You know, that does. And, and oh, and specifically, they both have climactic scenes at press conferences. Yep. That's why I was thinking about them. Uh, where, you know, the 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 male lead is put on the spot and has to publicly, like like ask a question to uh, to the female lead uh, who is on a stage. Um, they play out very differently. You know, that does not have a melancholy ending. <laughs> but I think as a double feature of of, of uh, great romantic comedies that, uh, you know. With with similar themes set in European cities, but also, uh, you know, ha- have different types of endings. I think that would be a really satisfying double feature. And also, I would put these are both movies that I would have on like my list of like the ten best romantic comedies ever made. Yeah. Um. And so I'm like, yeah, that that's that's what I'm gonna go with. This might be the best set of three. Let's make it a doubles. So we have Casablanca, an American in Paris, and Notting Hill. Folks, you could do a heck of a lot worse than spending an eight-hour day watching all four of these movies. But oh, also, an- sorry, another thing Notting Hill has is it also <laughs> has a funny, bearded, kind of beatnik best friend of the male lead. Yep, that's, that's what like, every film needs. Yeah, I mean, look, every movie should just be looking at Roman Holiday and being like. Okay, cool. Uh, just just gonna take all the notes from this, and uh, and we'll just keep doing this forever because <laughs> they got it right. And let's just look. If you're gonna rip off anything, rip off like the best. Absolutely. Well, Brad, I want to throw to you as we get into final scores here today. Having watched Sabrina, I am still very much wrestling with which of these films I think is better, and therefore what score to give this movie. But you've seen them both, and you always have strong opinions. What would you give Roman Holiday out of 10? Man, that this is honestly a tough one. 
I am a little cooler on this than I might have been when I was younger, but I still absolutely love it. And Patrick, you are 100% right. The last five to 10 minutes of this film are pure, like just movie perfection. So I, I think this is an incredible movie that has so many beautiful spots. We didn't even talk about the barber. I mean, how incredible is the barber? And he comes back. Mm. That's yes! that's I, that's part of it. It's like she she meets these people during the day and and forms like actual connections with them. Like the, they just they just get to dance at the party later on. Yeah. Listen, man, I I love a good Chekhov's barber. Uh, but Brad, <laughs> Brad, what's your score, man? I'm I'm waiting with bated breath here. I will give it a nine out of ten, Bob. I, I think that this is an incredible romantic comedy. I think that it moves at a great pace. I, I think that it's just the right amount of time. And it has some absolutely classic moments in it. So easily an incredible film. I'm also at a nine. I think because Sabrina kind of ruined it for me a little bit this time around. I really do think Sabrina's a 10 out of 10. It's got one of Wilder's best scripts. It's got Audrey Hepburn at like maximum charm mode. And you get Bogart along with it. This film, though, what's really going for it is I think there's a little bit more artistry here than there was in Sabrina. Like we haven't really even talked about the cinematography except for a few specific movements of the camera. But uh, the cinematographer on this movie is the same guy, Patrick, that did uh, Jacques Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. And so like interesting, the the kind of gothic elements to it when you're inside these huge spaces and they really do film the architecture so beautifully. So I think this movie has a lot going for it, but I'm also landing at a nine out of ten. Uh, I'm also going nine out of 10. I mean, I feel like I say this every time, but you make it easy because uh, I just think like, oh, why I just give this on letterbox when I logged it this morning? <laughs> oh, right. Four point <laughs> five. Um, yeah, I'm also OK. Uh, not not to dwell on letterboxed, but uh, um, people complain. It, OK. The comments on on letterboxed reviews, I think, are almost always stupid and annoying. I. Uh, and people are constantly giving me shit because I very rarely give out five star ratings, uh, especially like like I, I, I never give out five star ratings for a, like a first viewing of a movie. Uh, I, I'm always like, look, that mean for me, that means it is like transcendent masterpiece, one of the truly best things ever made. And so and I'm going to need at least a second viewing to like determine that. Um and so, yeah, 4.5 is, to me, like, like that is a 9 out of 10. That is so high. That is so great. And really, all, all that means is I'm, I'm just like, yeah, it's not like, it's like one point away from being, like, one of the, the select few, like, greatest things humanity has ever produced. <laughs> uh, and so I'm, I'm sorry, but, uh, so, yeah, uh, absolutely 9 out of 10. Um spectacular uh and i clearly need to get off my ass and watch sabrina as soon as humanly possible you gotta shoot us a message after you watch it let, will, let me know what you think man all right well we want to say from all three of us this movie is a nine out of ten and it is a darn good movie that you need to be watching almost immediately but we want to know what you think have you seen sabrina have we inspired you or sabrina have you seen Roman Holiday? Have we inspired you to go watch it or Sabrina? You can find us on all of our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, X. Are we calling it X now? No, 
Okay, good. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto the Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you guys, fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can find a link at the end of every single one of our show notes. We want to say thanks again to our guest today, Patrick Willems. Patrick, what do you have uh, in the pipeline for us? Uh, I will have, unless something terrible happens to, to prevent it from being released, I will have just released an extremely long uh, video, like over an hour, uh, uh, that, that is a murder mystery trying to figure out who is killing cinema. <laughs> I love this so much. Please you, tell me that it, it is like the 1980s clue. Where, where you have like multiple eight, endings? eight different endings. Yeah. <laughs> multiple <laughs> endings as to who killed it. Brad, are you trying to kill me? I was going to say, maybe the terrible thing that happened was what I just said. Uh, yeah, it, I'll, I'll put it this way. This video is already, like, I think qualifies as, like, a feature-length video. And so if I then also made multiple endings for it, then uh, I would die. I just want to see you and, and everybody in your cast, like, running frantically from room to room in your apartment. <laughs> uh, that would be great, but, uh, but, uh, no, we, well, now I feel like that's, the video does sounds disappointing because I don't have that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, th I think it's still pretty good, but yeah, that's what I've been working on basically all month. And so then, and it just came out. So go watch it on, you know, YouTube or Nebula, uh, you know, it's just 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 Google Patrick Willems and and I'll I'll show up. The other Patrick Willems is, is a, a Belgian rower uh, whose Olympic career is like, you know, decades past. And so, you know, you, you won't get him confused. You're not looking for him. Yeah. No. All right. So we want to say thanks again to Patrick for being here. We will be back next week kicking off our final miniseries of the season. And guess who it is, Brad? It's our old friend, Alfred Hitchcock. My boy, Hitch. Do you think one or two of those movies might be a little Hitchcockian? I was, I was going to say it too. <laughs> Just in time for spooky season, we get some nice murders. So join us next week as we kick off Hitchcock. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 